What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Each and every Monday through Friday, we take your phone calls, we answer your emails, uh, questions that come to us via social media. Uh, today, we're not going to be doing all that. We will uh, tackle uh, a bunch of uh, emailed questions to us uh, on our special mailbag program. Uh, we are not doing a live show today because uh, the network is honoring the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., so we are closed. We'll have a live show for you again uh, tomorrow. So today, it's going to be uh, our producer, uh, Charles Berry, me, Tom Price, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. Uh, and I think it's it's important that we honor the memory of Dr. King, don't you? Of course. I think it's tremendously important. He's one of our great national heroes and has uh, inspired me quite a lot. Absolutely. Well, me as well. So we're going to lead off uh, today with this email from Jennifer. And she says, hello, I've been exploring Catholicism and I'm struggling with trusting God. What is your best advice on developing trust in God? For example, if I think of pointless suffering, like a baby animal suffering alone in the woods, how can I trust God loves all of his creation? And again, that's from Jennifer. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. I appreciate the question. So here's how I, I don't think you do it. I don't think that you can work your way up from, uh, like, to it with an argument for the uniform benevolence of God towards baby animals from experience. Mm, you know, yeah, you're not yeah. going to get there empirically. I mean, the 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 doctrine, the, the Christian doctrine that God consciously superintends uh, world history in order to bring about his purposes is something that basically we have to take on faith because Scripture teaches that Christ reveals it. And the goodness of God in Revelation is manifest especially in the person of Jesus, and it's his self-sacrifice his willing to enter into this world of suffering and to take that on himself on our behalf that is the strongest evidence of God's benevolence towards us, right? Uh, but that's accessible, you know, f through revelation, through our encounter with Christ. Uh, when it comes to God in nature, abstracted from the specifically Christian revelation, then I, I think you can trust God's goodness. You can, I think you can know God's goodness more than trust. I think you can know God's goodness um, when you understand the way the Catholic Church conceives of God's relationship to the physical world, to the created order. And we have a tendency to imagine God is somehow outside of and separate from the material world. Like, here we are, and then God's up there in the sky someplace. And and you're wondering about how God, you know, sort of looking down through uh, some sort of plexiglass plating over the world and observing what's going on, yeah. like he's looking inside an aquarium or something, <laughs> and, you know, making these uh, uh, strategic interventions here and there to bring about his purposes. That's a deistic, more or less, view of God, or maybe a pagan view of God. It's not really the Catholic view of God, which which St. Paul articulates in Acts 17 when he says God is him in whom we live and move and have our being, that uh, our very existence is predicated on God being 
actively present to our very essences, causing our very act of being in every moment. St. Thomas would say that God is the very act of being. And we participate in that by our very act of being. Yeah. And being as such, when you encounter any, any, anything that is, anything that has existence, there's a kind of goodness implicit there. A, a beauty, a truth, a desirability of, of, of being qua being, being as being. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you might, you, you question that. Well, really, Andrews, is that true? I mean, you know, what about this caterpillar that's so ugly? I don't, I don't, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, even a caterpillar, if you, you spend enough time looking at the caterpillar, you begin to find the elements of beauty and goodness in the contemplation of the caterpillar, in the contemplation of the tree, in the contemplation of the waterfall, what have you. And, and the evils that we experience, they're not, they're not concrete existing entities. They're usually some misuse, some misappropriation of something, the animal, for example, that's good for its own sake, and so in that way we can we can have an have a, a profound experience of the goodness of God, implicit in the very act of being that that of course permeates and pervades every act of consciousness that we make. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much for your email there, Jennifer. Here's one now from Tanner in Ohio. Hello, Dr. Anders. I received a brown scapular for Christmas. After doing some research, I feel it's something that is definitely worth taking on. I'm excited to get started. What advice can you offer someone who wants to use this sacramental? Yeah, well, uh, put it on. Put it on. Good start. <clears throat> and and you, know, you can have it blessed and uh, learn about St. Simon's stock and begin to imitate his piety. And, of course, the whole reason for the brown scapular is to bring the lay faithful uh, into a kind of communion with a recollection upon and, and, and reliance upon the intercessions and merits of the Carmelite order. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to put on the brown scapular and not say, well, okay, well, I'm going to learn something about Carmelites and Carmelite spirituality and, and let that influence the way I, I live this, uh, this particular devotion. There is also uh, a, a society of the brown scapular that right. a that a priest can enroll a person that in. That is exactly right. Very good. And here's one now from Rob. A Protestant friend asked me about the history of priests' vestments and if they had pagan origins. What are your thoughts uh, on this? Thanks, Rob. Right. So this is the kind of thing that uh, absolutely never kept me riveted, you know, <laughs> at my bedside pouring over, you know, yellowed manuscripts until midnight, you know. I mean, I, I did feel that way about the church's dogma and philosophy and ethical life and that sort of thing. But when it came to questions of, uh, say, liturgical dress, um, that was probably the last part of my Catholic formation to, for me to get interested in and remains with my, probably my weakest suit when mm. answering questions about Catholicism. Um, so I can't give you the detailed history because I never, quite honestly never cared that much. But was it pagan? Of course. Of course it was pagan. Like, you think everybody was naked until Christianity came along? <laughs> right. No, I mean, that, that, that Christians dressed uh, like the, the society, the civilization that they lived in. Sure. Right. And uh, and so of course many of the accoutrements and the in the in the gestures and the um, and and as well as the vestments of uh, of Catholic liturgical celebration are reminiscent of the culture in which those traditions developed. Now you know th- that's not a problem. Yeah. Right. That's not a problem. 
It does go way back. It goes way back. That's for sure. And uh, Rick, uh, Rob, rather, thank you so much uh, for your email. We're going to get to a lot of emails in this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. If you'd like to send us one for a future show, love to hear from you at ctc at EWTN.com. Back in a moment. Hey, glad you're with us on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Interesting question here, David. Uh, This is from uh, Carol, who listens to us on The Quest in Atlanta. She says, I am reading Salvation is from the Jews, a book by Roy Shulman. I find it fascinating. It reads from such a different perspective. Have you read it? And if so, could you give us a review, please? And again, that's from Carol listening on The Quest in Atlanta. Oh, uh, well, unfortunately, no, I haven't read it. <laughs> so I can't give you much of a detailed review. Um, I know it's published by Ignatius Press, which is uh, one of the good guys. Very trustworthy. One of the good guys. You yeah. Know? Um, and, uh, of course, I'm interested in the topic. So how about it? Absolutely. I had breakfast uh, doing one of these uh, live radio things uh, with Roy Showman a number of years ago. And uh, he's a fascinating fellow. Wonderful. Here you go. And here is an email now from uh, Perla of Alexandria, Virginia, who says, Our bishop has not issued any guidelines on how our diocese will implement that new document on blessing of same-sex couples. I'm against it. I would like to know the position of my parish church where I regularly attend Mass. Is it appropriate to ask my pastor directly? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, but, you know, you, you won't get an answer that's any more authoritative than what he's permitted to give. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, and, and it'll be his it'll be his private interpretation, uh, which may be authoritative in his parish, but uh, but it's not going to supersede anything that the bishop has to say. Perla, thank you so much uh, for checking in from Alexandria. Here's one now from uh, Laura, who says, hi, Dr. Anders. I came back to the church after being gone my entire adult life, thanks to you. I was confirmed at eight years old, didn't know how ignorant I was until I started listening to your program. I didn't even know the basics of our faith. I married a Missouri Synod Lutheran some 23 years ago. We adopted two young babies 22 years ago. Unfortunately, they were raised as Lutheran. It was too late to change by then, so I prayed for a Catholic girl for my son, which he got. The only problem is that she converted to Lutheranism for him. So now I not only feel guilty for not raising my kids as Catholic, but now I feel guilty for losing another Catholic. What do I do? I guess nobody in her family goes to church, so there's no influence there. Help, and that's from Laura. Yeah, well, first of all, you you totally need to get rid of this guilt complex, Yeah, because yeah. uh, you haven't done anything wrong at all. Um, so, you know, most people who walk away from the church, and this is what the, this is what the sociology tells us, they leave the church, they say, because their spiritual needs aren't being met. That Uh is to say, they're not connecting with their experience of Catholic faith, and they're very likely ignorant of the Catholic faith. And so it's not like they're, they, they have a sort of eyes wide open, fully informed, obstinate decision to reject God. I mean, it's Mm. nothing like that. It's, it's more like they're, they're, you know, they they were weakly attached to the church to begin with. They uh-huh. weren't really connecting in their spiritual life and their emotional life, and then something else comes along, and grabs their attention, and they they you know, most people are operating, I think, in a spirit of goodwill, 
And uh, if they go to another Christian church, they, they, it probably manifests genuine desire to be close to God. They just don't know the right way to do it. So you don't hold that against them. God doesn't hold that against them. Um, I, I would, I would you know, regard them largely as invincibly ignorant. They, they don't know better, right, until they've learned better, like you did, right? You yeah, didn't really yeah. know what you were missing until you came back. But when you were away from the church, you were operating in good faith. You wanted to do good by your children. You wanted to do right. You wanted to follow your conscience. Mm-hmm. And so that's not blameworthy. In fact, that's the right disposition to have. Um, uh, secondly, you're not. You're absolutely not responsible for the religious decisions of your daughter-in-law. That totally is not within your purview. And uh, and so all you're responsible for right now, especially when the child has grown, left the house, and got married is that you manifest the love of Christ to them and show them what Catholic faith can do in a human heart, uh, which is to say transform it into charity and patience and kindness and these sorts of things. So at the very least, they won't be able to hold forth any stereotypes, negative stereotypes about Catholicism, because you'll be a living um, contradiction to those stereotypes. Yeah. You know, there's a popular, I guess, 21st century phrase, uh, you don't know what you don't you know. You don't know what you don't know. So don't don't let it consume you. Thanks so much uh, for your email. We're doing a special uh, uh, mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Rob listens to us in Beaverton, Oregon, listening on Modern Day Radio normally. He says, Dear Tom and Dr. Anders, I'm a regular listener. I have learned so much from your program. All right, David, get ready for this. In the interest of healthy eating in the new year, is there a place we can find Dr. Anders' favorite vegan recipes? I'm particularly interested in which spices are best for lentil dishes. God bless Rob in Beaverton. Yeah, great. Love this question. Off you go. Nothing to do with Catholicism, but I'll (laughs) play with it anyway. So, Well, of course, it all depends on what you like. And if you were to ask my wife, she would tell you that I pick absolutely the wrong spices for lentils (laughs) uh, because I'm very partial to, you know, the sort of the Indian flavors. I like things to be pungent and hot and all that kind of thing. My wife is a... if everything could be like cream, oregano, and basil, she would be very happy. She <laughs> would, she wants to eat Italian, so she's not into that kind of All stuff. Right. But if you want to do know what I do, um, you know there is a uh, there's something as a mixture that they have in southern India called sambar powder, which is a, a mixture of herbs and spices that that uh, that they put in lentils to spice them up. And I used to I had a I had a a um, a friend from Tamil Nadu who used to load me up with sambar powder, and I would just always season my lentils with that. And then I eventually ran out, and he moved away, and I had to come up with my own recipe. So now I, I, I heavily weight um, garlic powder and onion powder and mustard powder and turmeric and cumin and coriander and paprika. That's kind of the secret ingredient there, Ooh, paprika, okay. um, uh, as well as cayenne pepper. And, um, and so that, that you mix all that together, and it's quite a pungent I'll bet. Uh, uh, concoction. But I'll tell you what, every time I, I cook that almost every day, when I open that up at the office, people walking by go, hmm, man, something smells good. And that's something it. Something smells good. Except John Martinetti one time. He walked by and saw my <laughs> he saw my lunch. You know, lentils, like, they don't, they don't necessarily look appetizing. No. You know, they're kind of like a big pile of brown mush. And he yeah. looked at me and says, Anders, that is the most disgusting thing I have ever seen in my entire <laughs> life. <laughs> he only said that because he hadn't tasted it. Well, that's true. He what was a, just going on the appearance. Yeah, like the, that's the right. physical presentation. Are, are there any uh, online places you could recommend to get go, go get vegan recipes? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's tons of them these days. I mean, you know, I, you just internet search vegan recipes, you'll get gazillions of them. But, okay. uh, you know, when I was sort of getting into all this, uh, two sources that were helpful to me were the, the Forks Over Knives people. 
uh, and they publish oh, all yeah. kinds of yeah, yeah. magazines and recipe books and so forth. And then, uh, and then Dr. Michael Greger's, um, uh, his How Not to Die cookbook. Uh, I got some good ideas out of that. So, but, uh, you know, I, I, what I do now, it's kind of an adventure for me. I, I, I keep my pantry stocked with, with herbs and spices and ingredients. Then I go to my refrigerator, I throw it open, and I go, okay, what vegetables do I have in here? And, and what can I do to make them interesting? And, um, and it's amazing how they come back around to that same set of spices. But I'm also really, I like Asian flavors of, you know, far Asian. So Good I also stuff. like, you know, garlic and ginger and sure, soy sauce and sure. that kind of business. Rob, have fun in yep. Beaverton. I think you're going to have a blast uh, checking uh, various things out. Call to communion here on EWTN. Interesting question here. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, there was a caller asking about anonymous confession, and they were a little troubled yeah, by all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this person... Uh, looks like uh, her name is Hope. Hope says there is a canon law, canon law 964, stating that a fixed grate be provided between the penitent and the confessor. Years ago, I complained to my pastor that our confessional lacked a fixed grill. I hope this sheds light on the matter. God bless. Keep up the good work. So here is that uh, canon 964. Uh, paragraph one, the proper place to hear sacramental confessions is a church or oratory. Graph 2, the Conference of Bishops is to establish norms regarding the confessional. It is to take care, however, that there are always confessionals with a fixed grate between the penitent and the confessor in an open place so that the faithful who wish to can use them freely. And then uh, finally, confessions are not to be heard outside a confessional without a just cause. Any thoughts there? Yeah, well, my first thought was down here in Alabama, the most common use for a fixed grill is when the Knights of Columbus decide to smoke the Boston butts. You yeah. Know, they do every 4th of July. Yeah. We're, we're big on fixed grills <laughs> in that department. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so, you know, this is, a, this is a peculiarity of the Latin rite, that uh-huh. this, this opportunity to go to confession anonymously is really strongly emphasized. You don't find it quite as much in the other Catholic rites, uh, but, uh, but I personally, I'm— I like having the choice. I like being able to take advantage of that anonymity. Mm-hmm. Although being a radio personality really puts a kink in that anonymity thing. Tell me about you it. Know? And I, I, I won't say who, but I have a, another Catholic radio personality friend who told me that he went to confession out of state one time. You know, he's behind the grill and uh-huh. everything. And you're not supposed to do this, right? But the priest goes, hey, I know that voice. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Oops. He's not supposed to do that, though. That's funny. All right, here's one now uh, from Gregory, who says, (laughs) excuse me, my 38-year-old wife, who is a convert to the faith, has an 8-year-old full-time. I have four kids aged 12 through 6 from an annulled marriage. I have them alternating weekends and half of holiday weeks. So on occasion, we have five children in the house. Most of the time, it's just my 8-year-old stepdaughter. I thought my wife was open to having kids. Ten months into our marriage, she stated she doesn't want to have kids because with her child, she had postpartum and believes that if she gets pregnant, she will get depressed. She also stated she doesn't want to deal with middle-of-the-night wake-ups and all the inconveniences of having a little child. I believe the church has taught that NFP can be used to space out children, but it would be illicit to use it to never have children. I told her we should continue to have relations, and if we conceive, it's divine providence. She believes I'm being selfish for thinking that. In her research of NFP on Catholic sources, she has found writings that suggest it is okay to use NFP 
to never have children if it is for a serious reason. So my question is, what is a serious reason? If all families use the lack of desire to not wake up at night, change diapers, etc., then very few would have children. Can you please shed light on this? That's from Gregory. Yeah, thanks, Gregory. So I want to make a couple distinctions here. One of them is that in order to achieve a valid marriage, uh, the couple that intends to marry must be intrinsically open to the possibility of conception through what is presumed to be their habit of of conjugal relations, sure. right? So if you sure. don't if you don't intend conjugal relations, or you don't intend for those relations to be open to life, then then it's not a valid marriage. Now, uh, here's what I don't want you to do: I don't want you to doubt the validity of your marriage, right? And the church doesn't, right? right. The church always presumes the validity of any marriage, unless it's you know the question gets raised in like an annulment proceeding or something but but I, I just tell you this because there there is a presumption that uh, that when people get married they're open to uh, they're open to life they're open to the possibility of having children um, now uh, how does that get lived out practically well obviously it doesn't mean that you have to have kids this month or even next month or maybe not even next year and and so the way I would approach this is I were you is I would say okay this is where my wife is today yeah it doesn't mean that that's where she's going to be in a year or two years or five years or whatever and I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna form a kind of radical judgment based on some future that I don't know and I rec- I recognize that my wife may have very serious reasons for the position that she's taken she's afraid uh, she suffered a lot she doesn't want to suffer again. Um, and I want to be uh, really respectful of that, and I want to be very sensitive uh, to her in that. And, you know, I, the, weighing the gravity of a decision uh, against someone's psychological condition is something that is absolutely beyond my purview in this show, because I don't know your wife, I don't know her psychology, um, and probably even you don't know well enough to make that judgment. I think you have to approach this with pastoral charity, and uh, and not certainly not come in swinging a kind of authoritative moral hammer, mm. and saying you know you're you're in the wrong here you're doing something bad, uh, and give her and add guilt to fear that would be a really bad relational move. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, you know, don't you tell her this? If she came to me and asked me what I thought, I would say, you know, please don't tell your husband he's being selfish. Right? That like don't don't judge his motives any more than you want him to judge yours, right? And, uh, and so, I, you know, but you may have to put up with what I take, would take to be kind of a judgmental attitude here. She's, she's reducing your position to selfishness. You don't feel that that's your motive at all. This is not a self-aggrandizing thing on your part that you're right. seeking. Um, and yet, um, you know, having to live with that accusation and swallow it and keep your mouth shut and uh, while while you yourself are call, called upon to be generous in your judgments and, and, and to show charity and patience, and you don't feel like you're getting that back, that's tough. That's really hard. That's a bitter pill to swallow. Guess what? That's why marriage is sanctifying. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you something my father told me more than once. He said, David, he's speaking to me as a husband, as a husband. He said about our wives, he says, they are allowed to criticize us. We are not allowed to criticize them. Wow. And he lived by that. And a very long and happy life and very happy uh, yeah, marriage, yeah, too. Yeah, he did. He Absolutely. Did. Let's uh, go out on this one. If we need to, we'll carry it over the break. This is from Zach. I frequently hear that we should follow our thinking and not our feelings. Well, 
My thinking isn't always right, though. What should I do when this happens? Uh, spend time with prudent people and ask their counsel. Oh, yeah. Don't trust your own judgment if you don't think it's trustworthy. Uh, but find people who you think are very trustworthy and who have sound judgment. Spend time with them. Seek their counsel and seek it a lot. Be, you know, be, be quick to listen, slow to speak, all that good stuff. Be open to that counsel, not just lip service, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I mean, don't if you don't trust your thinking, by all means, don't go with your feelings. That would be the absolute wrong way to go. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but be teachable. Be docile to instruction from people who are wise. Zach, thanks so much uh, for your email. We are doing emails today on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We have some longer emails that we like to do on shows like today. So if you have sent us a long email... By by golly, it just might get answered on today's program. Keep it right here on EWTN for lots more Call to Communion. Thanks for joining us for this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Not doing a live show today because of uh, our remembrance of the great Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., couple of uh, website a couple of uh, emails to get to here here's one from George this is actually David a three-part question and he says in Matthew 28 Jesus says this is my blood of the covenant which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins so first question what sins is Jesus referring to are these sins of the past sins of the future or both second question why is it shed on behalf of many but not all Finally, can you provide a basic reference on the atonement, something like uh, the atonement for dummies, you know, if you're familiar with the the, uh, book series. Thanks for all of this. George. Yes, I can get all that done. Thank you so much. So I think that when Christ institutes the sacrament on Holy Thursday, that we can look both to the sacrifice of Calvary that that anticipates and the holy sacrifice of the Mass that is the memorial of the sacrifice of Calvary. The sacrifice of Calvary, of course, makes atonement for all sin and applied to us in baptism, remits uh, the guilt and the punishment due to all sin, mortal and venial. Um, the, uh, the mass that is the memorial of Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to remit venial sins to the penitent soul that approaches the mysteries but if a person is conscious of grave sin, uh, although the grace of Christ is sufficient to atone for that sin, it is applied to us in the context of the confessional, not Holy Mass. So if you approach Holy Mass in the state of grave sin, uh, don't expect to have your sins remitted through the sacrifice. In fact, you're here, you're offering impure worship to God, which is what the Church calls a sacrilegious communion, so you don't want to do that. Um, uh, why does he say for many rather than for all? Because the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the sacrifice of the Church. Uh, it's not the sacrifice of the whole world. It's the, no, the, the, the death on Calvary was for the whole world, yeah. right? Um, but the Mass is the application of the fruits of that to the faithful, to the elect, to the believers, to the Christian Church. And it is the offering that the Church offers, uh, and not everybody is a participant in that, right? Now, we pray that they will be. We will be. Um, but uh, but that's why, and that's that's the, the answer that St. Thomas gives explicitly in the Summa when he talks about the for many versus the for all. All right. Um, and then finally, can I give you a, a primer on the um, on the atonement? Yes, I'll give you two. One that's lengthy, and one that is uh, you know about a two pager. Uh, there is a book 
by Oxenham, O-X-E-N-H-A-M, called The Catholic Doctrine of the Atonement. That will lay it all out for you. So go get a hold of Oxenham. Okay. Um, if you want a, a real short sort of internet-length <clears throat> article, uh, my friend Brian Cross has an article on the Call to Communion website, the title of which I think is Catholic and Reformed Conceptions of the Atonement Compared. But if you look up Brian Cross Atonement, you'll find it. All right. And that website, calledtocommunion.com. George, thanks so much for your email today. It is called to Communion on EWTN as we continue with uh, some of the great emails we've received over the past couple of weeks. Here's one now from Albert. Uh, my wife, who is a convert, was having a conversation with her mother, who was sacramentalized a Catholic but has been a Protestant since her teenage years. My wife asked her why she doesn't practice the faith. Her mother said, well, it's because my wife's mother's mother was Catholic and married outside the faith without dispensation. Per the grandmother now, she and all of her children, including my wife's mother when she was a teenager, were excommunicated from the church because of this. To me, this just doesn't sound right. I could be wrong, but I don't think the church excommunicates minors, especially for the mistakes of their parents. So my question is, does the church even back in the 1960s excommunicate people for marrying outside the faith? And would they also excommunicate the children? Or does my wife's mother have a misunderstanding of what really happened? Thanks, Albert. Yeah, thank you. So uh, here's what's true. Um, in previous decades, the church took a much harder line on people marrying outside the church. Now, today, if a person marries outside the church, if they're Catholic, we understand that that's not a valid marriage, and they uh, and and as long as they live in that conjugal union, they cannot uh, licitly approach uh, for Holy Communion and, and so forth unless they reconcile and get their marriage regularized. Okay, uh, but that doesn't constitute an excommunication. I mean, you can still participate in Catholic life; you just can't receive the sacraments. Right? Okay. Um, yes, there was a time when you could be excommunicated and basically cast out. Uh, for engaging in what was considered to be scandalous behavior. I have never heard of the penalty of excommunication applied to the children, right? That that I've never heard of. My suspicion is that what happened is that when the parent was excommunicated, that uh, that the whole family just left, right? And so, you know, kind of they may have felt it mm. as a sort of de facto excommunication of sure. the family. Um, but then there's also the possibility that some prelate uh, took a very high, you know, heavy hand and did something that, you know, was illegitimate in terms of applying some disciplinary rule that that, that was excessive and, and shouldn't have been applied, right? And uh, in the history of the Catholic Church, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, back centuries and centuries and centuries, there have been many abuses of the discipline of excommunication. I mean, popes mm. used to excommunicate people right, left, and center for all kinds of reasons, some of which only had to do with the temporal benefits of the papacy and very little with the good of souls. And, and so it led to—there was a kind of a excommunication inflation, if you will, which led some souls to basically disdain or despise the discipline and not take it too seriously. Uh, a, a celebrated example would be Savonarola, um, the uh, the reformer in Florence who was uh, excommunicated and then burned at the stake, and he was, you know, he he uh, he didn't he didn't he didn't hold the discipline of excommunication in that high regard because he considered his own conscience to be clear, and uh, and of course, you know, when Luther was excommunicated, he really did leave the church. Um, his response was to burn the code of canon law and say, well, that's what I think of you, Mr. Pope, and your excommunication. Yeah, yeah. And and because of that, the Church has really pulled back on using the discipline of excommunication because it, if it ceases to be pastorally useful, 
you know, if it's thrown around willy-nilly and everybody and his brother is excommunicated, then then it kind of loses its force, right? So now you will find excommunications, uh, but typically the the only cases that I know of, and apart from from lattes tententii excommunications, the kind that people can incur automatically without a judgment of the magisterium, but mm-hmm. sort of extraordinary judgment, typically is reserved for priests, it's reserved for clerics that do, you know, way out wacky stuff. Um, and, you know, sort of obstinate, explicit disobedience to the Holy Father, like Archbishop Lefebvre, for example, when Pope John Paul II said, don't ordain any bishops for the Society of St. Pius X. And then he said, well, I'm going I'm to ordain bishops and you can go suck an egg. Right? <laughs> he got excommunicated for that. Sure. But you don't find it. You don't find the discipline applied very often at all <clears throat> today because we kind of learned our lesson with the uh, the the disciplinary inflation of the Middle Ages. All right, and we thank you so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Susan sent us this question. When we pray in the Confidior, quote, therefore I ask the Blessed Mary, ever virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God, when are my brothers and sisters praying for me, and when should I be praying for them? In that moment. Ah. In that moment. You're, you're there to, gathered as the people of God to pray to God for yourself and for one another. Okay. Well, there you go. Call to communion here on EWTN. Interesting question here from Lars in Akron, Ohio. In John chapter 20, Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and, quote, showed them his hands and his side. Apparently, had cons- Jesus had conspicuous scars at those locations on his resurrection body. Did he also have conspicuous scars on his back from the flogging he was given and scars on his forehead from the crown of thorns placed there? Thanks, Lars in Akron. No idea. No idea. Do not know. No right? way that we could know. And, and you know, St. Paul's understanding of the resurrected body of Jesus mm-hmm. is such that it would seem that this is a decision that Christ makes to allow his physical body to bear these scars so that the continuity with uh, his earthly life would be evident to his disciples. But this, the, the resurrected body of Christ is thoroughly, um, i trying to think of the right word, I don't want to say spiritualized because that makes it sound immaterial, and I don't mean that. Um, you know, I don't know, how about come up with, with a Greek neologism like pneumaticized or something from the Greek <laughs> word pneuma. Um, it's it's pervaded by a spiritual principle, and maybe that's a way of putting it, that that enables it to transcend many of the normal limitations of physicality. Um, and uh, and yet, Christ deigns to permit that physical body to retain the marks of the crucifixion. Very good. And we thank you so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. In our home, we have a closet. And I'll tell you about this closet. We... Uh, this goes to my days of doing Top 40 radio. We, we call it the prize closet because it, at a radio station, uh, it, there was often a closet at the station that would hold concert tickets and various uh, swag items, uh, T-shirts, ball caps, and all that kind of stuff. So we have what we call a prize closet for future uh, like birthday gifts or future um, Christmas gifts and stuff like that. You may want to stock your prize closet, as it were, with uh, items from EWTN's religious catalog. And here is a great addition for that closet of yours, and that is a beautiful T 
tea towels where you can add a beautiful and holy touch to your kitchen kitchen, or perhaps uh, somebody else's kitchen. Lovely tea towels from our catalog. Twelve patterns are available all the way from Christmas towels to a Celtic cross to the legend of the ladybug, if you've never heard of that. God bless the cook. All kinds of wonderful towels. They're made from 100% cotton, decorative white flower sack. They measure about 26 inches wide by 26 inches long when not folded. They're machine washable and made in the good old USA. You can visit EWTNRC.com to see all the gorgeous designs. When you get to the search engine, just put in Um, towels. That's all you have to do. Again, EWTNRC.com. Stuck up that uh, prize closet of yours because you never know. You you find out that so-and-so, like maybe uh, a priest that you know, their, their birthday is like today. Or, or tomorrow, and, and you go, hey, I'm going to go check the prize closet. So when do you guys start your Christmas shopping? You know, we start stuffing things away in, I, I guess, probably June or July. But if we do see something like these, these tea towels, uh, why not grab something like that? I, I have nothing but admiration for people who plan that far and ahead. You know, I've, I, I live with people that are, <clears throat> let's, start, let's shop for Christmas in January, uh-huh. you know, and they're always way prepared, <clears throat> whereas I am— uh, you know, I'm, I usually the, the the closet is empty by the time it's <laughs> time for me to wrap presents. So I'm out there in mid to late December doing my last minute thing. Well, I'm not saying but, we're uh, good at it, yeah. but but you know, every now and then you will find things, especially if we're out of town and and we see like a little souvenir or something oh, like a great that. Idea. Absolutely. Here's a question now from Nancy. Actually, uh, two questions here for Dr. Anders. Number one: Should Catholic parents shun their adult children? Who are living in sin. That is, take a stand and lovingly explain we can't have them in our home together, even non-overnight, until they get married. I've heard this was done in past centuries and that it helped to uphold Catholic morals because, quote, everyone did it. But that's not the case in our culture today. Is this a matter of church discipline that can change with the times? If we did this, it would likely drive our daughter away from us semi-permanently, could have other harmful consequences for her and maybe alienate her younger sister from us. Both already resent the restrictive ways that they felt they were raised as homeschooled Catholics, and they see their parents as somewhat hypocritical. Well, I'm willing to lose my two daughters for an extended period if this is what God requires of me to be faithful to him. I don't want to contribute to her living in sin by going on friendly as usual as if everything is okay. However, if the church doesn't teach us to do this, I would rather make a brief statement of my disapproval but allow them to come visit, not overnight, save the relationship, and keep the goodwill and lines of communication open. So, what does the church say parents in this situation should do? And is this different from what the church would have said, let's say, 100 years ago. Can I tell them my position for the record, then see them socially both in and outside of my home and be friendly, like all is well with their souls, or is that just enabling them? Thank you, Nancy. Thanks, Nancy. I appreciate the question. So, first of all, this isn't the kind of thing where you're going to get a definitive answer from the magisterium, where they're going to lay down a principle and say, you must always handle such and such and such and such a way. It just doesn't, doesn't work, though. It's not, how, it's not how pastoral theology works. Uh, it's always a prudential judgment. Now, 
Obviously, you yourself have recognized that social mores have changed, the culture has changed, and the culture of the church has changed. And so, of course, in earlier centuries and earlier decades of the last century, um, you would expect to have parents and, and pastors take a firmer hand, uh, you know, a more sort of uh, strict disciplinarian approach to this kind of thing. It, it is an open question as to whether or not that was effective then and whether it would be effective now. So, I mean, I think there's no doubt that, yes, that was probably more the way it, in earlier centuries, and yet, um, and yet we still saw the massive defections from the church that we saw in the 20th century. Um, so I don't know that that solves the problem. Um, I, I think a better approach, in my judgment, principle that I draw from moral theology, pastoral theology, regarding the, uh, the spiritual work of mercy called um, uh, admonishing the sinner. When do you admonish the sinner? And what the Catholic moral theologians tell us is that you admonish sinners when uh, the sin is grave, when you have a reasonable expectation that they will hear your admonition, listen to you, and third, you're the person best suited to make the admonition. And I think very often those, all those conditions do not obtain when we may be tempted to say something. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you also said... Well, you know, should I just state my position for the record and then move on? Haven't you done that? I mean, I think you told me that you homeschooled your children and they resent what they took to be a restrictive atmosphere. I suspect you told them till you were blue in the face Probably what your so. position was. Yeah, yeah. Right? And if you, if you open your mouth again and say the same stuff they've heard all these years just once to get your position out, I, I I don't know that that's going to make a hill of beans difference because they already know your position, right? They know you. They know, you know. I mean, you're under no obligation, for example, to let an unmarried copy, couple come and stay in a bedroom in your house. You're not, you're not obligated to do that. Right. Um, and I wouldn't ask you to do anything to violate your conscience. Um, uh, however, you have to ask yourself the question, what is the best chance I have of being a positive moral influence on this on these young people. Uh, do I expect that if I lay down the law and state my displeasure and make a big stink, that that's going to bring them to their senses? And my guess is it's not. And, and uh, look, I'm not, I'm not giving a universal rule. I'm telling you what I've seen in some concrete situations, contemporary situations. Um, I think you, you do better oftentimes to just show your goodwill, they already know what you think. And, you know, Christ spent an enormous amount of time with people who lived in irregular situations, whose moral lives were vitiated in one way or the other, uh-huh. and who were accustomed to being outcast because of it. And one of the things that stood out in, his Christ, in Christ's ministry is that he went drinking with these people, quite literally. Yeah, he yeah. went drinking with them, right? Got accused of being a drunkard and hanging out with prostitutes. So, how many of us are at risk of being told that we are drunkards who hang out with prostitutes? Those of us who are regular mass attenders. Not many, I suspect, <laughs> right? And, and of course, Christ had, had perfect continence and chastity and purity and all that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not advocating that you do things that would lead you into sin, to be sure. Right. But you see my point, right, is that, you know, Jesus seems to me to have always been concerned with the person, and what is the pastoral approach that is best to reach that person? 
That's 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 got to be the decision more than uh, an abstract principle that you think you have to articulate in order. Fidelity to God is a matter of loving God and people. Yeah. Right. Fundamentally, and and it takes pastoral prudence to know how to do that in a concrete situation. Well, there you go. And thank you so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN as we continue uh, opening up the mailbag. Here's one from Bob in Austin, Texas. Hello, Mr. Price and Dr. Anders. You have often referred to the uh, how the Catholic Church built Western civilization when highlighting that Jesus' incarnation and subsequent establishment of his church significantly transformed the world we live in for the better. Also, you suggest that the church poured the very foundations of society's better elements, which many folks take for granted. Well, did not G.K. Chesterton neatly nail all this in his 1929 book, The Thing, when he said, quote, The fact is this, that the modern world, with its modern movements, is living on its Catholic capital. It is using, and using up, the truths that remain to it out of the old treasury of Christendom. Um, yes, and of course, uh, uh, Chesterton is not the only person to make this observation. I mean, this has been a, a mainstay of Catholic uh, intellectual culture for quite some time. Um, so it's not, it's the argument is certainly not original to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Here's one now from, um, actually, this is an anonymous person who says, I am a Catholic. I sent a Christmas greeting to a non-Catholic relative over the holidays. I received a troubling reply. I'm wondering what this is all about. My relative said, quote, actually, Christmas is a pagan holiday, so I haven't celebrated it in over 30 years. Santa is a lie. December 25th is a lie. Santa omnipresence is a lie, etc. No lie is of the truth. 1 John 2.21, Revelations 22.18 and 19. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, first of all, Christmas is not a pagan holiday because pagans didn't celebrate Christmas. You won't find pagans that celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. No. Right? Um, it's a Christian holiday because at the center of the holiday is the celebration of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. So it's not pagan. Now, I think I know where this fellow is headed. I think what he may be suggesting is that that they picked as a date, uh, a, a date on the calendar that was previously occupied by by a pagan festival. Right? So let me ask you a question. Um, let's say you're in your community and you're trying to be a Christian witness for your community, and your community has got, um, you know, a, an unseemly celebration that they that this goes back generations and mm. is held on a particular night of the week. Okay. And you're a Baptist preacher, and you have a chance of supplanting that immoral celebration with, a, you know, a Wednesday night Baptist preaching service. Would you avoid that pastoral decision because, heck, Wednesday's been taken by the pagans? <laughs> no, you'd be thrilled to death to supplant, you know, an immoral activity with sure, a moral one. Sure, Right? I mean, I remember when, um, uh, you know, when I was a kid going to youth ministry events at my Presbyterian church, there was an explicit goal of setting up alternatives uh, at times when kids would otherwise be likely to engage in, in immoral or pagan behavior. Mm. So the church would come up with an analog. This is a Presbyterian church. They would come up with an analog uh, that would hopefully draw attention away from the pagan celebration and into some church-related activity. I think that probably the clearest example of that, when I was a kid, 
Presbyterian fundamentalists that I ran around with were they got they got woozy in the stomach about Halloween, which is funny because it has Christian origins too. Yeah, but they yeah. got woozy in the stomach about Halloween. So what they would do Halloween time is they'd put on a fall festival, you know, and let all the kids put costumes on sure. as a way of kind of to draw them away from the more uh, sort of dark elements of the popular celebration of Halloween. This is what Protestant fundamentalists did. Catholics have been doing the same thing for centuries. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Why is that bad? What what makes that objectionable? It's just this good, prudent decision here. Draw them away from the pagan celebration. Give them a Christian one instead. Um, <coughs> Santa is a lie. Um, so last time I checked, uh, the Catholic Church did not teach that uh, there was a fat man with flying reindeer who lived at the North Pole who delivered Christmas presents. Holding a bottle of Coke. Holding a bottle of Coke. I, I don't think the Catholic Church has ever taught that. Um, and like I'm I'm not real tempted to worship Santa, <laughs> and I don't know anybody that is, you know. Uh, in fact, oh, this is a funny story. So um, when I learned that Santa wasn't real as a child, I was kind of heartbroken by that. And I've, I mean, I really had high expectations for Santa. You know, I learned he, I just kind of broke my heart. Yeah. So I told my wife, I don't really want to do the Santa thing with my kids, not because I think it's morally objectionable. I just, I just didn't enjoy the experience of being, of being uh, disabused. And I don't want them to have the same kind of emotional uh, down, you know, when they find out. So I never told my kids that Santa was real. I just told them it was, an, you know, a legend and this kind of business. Yeah. So I, my daughter, we had her in Catholic schools, and I remember she was 8, 9, 10 years old, and she's sitting around the lunchroom table, and the other girls are talking about what Santa's going to bring them. And she says, well, you know, Santa's not real. And, of course, the, the entire lunchroom just collapses in tears and agony, oh. and all these girls are, you know, dying. And so we get a call from the principal. He's like, did you know that your daughter told everybody at the school that Santa <laughs> wasn't real? And our, our name was Mud. We lived in infamy for, like, the next two years. We were the family who spilled the beans on Santa. Oh, man. You know, and then, uh, let's see, no, tr- no lies of the truth. Well, that, that's true, but, I, again, I don't think anybody's lying here. No. Yeah. No, clearly not. All right. Well, we do appreciate that, and we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much uh, for all these wonderful emails. It's always a pleasure to do the uh, the the longer emails. We just don't have time to do during our live show that we normally do at this time, Monday through Friday. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program, as we say, Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, for our live broadcast, and we'll have that for you again tomorrow right here on EWTN. If you want to hear the podcast of this program at any time, check out our podcast by going to EWTN.com uh, uh, and then uh, forward slash radio. That's what you do. EWTN.com slash radio and then look for Podcast Central. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you tomorrow on the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We'll see you then. Have a great day and God bless.